Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. This episode is so very special to me because I have the privilege of interviewing a civil rights icon who is known around the globe, but is also a very dear friend to me and my family, the extraordinary Ruby Bridges, who at the age of six was the first black student to desegregate an all-white elementary school in New Orleans. As I mentioned in our conversation, I feel so fortunate to have known this beautiful soul for over 19 years. You know, sometimes I have to pinch myself because I've been gifted with some amazing friendships and stood in some incredibly unique rooms surrounded by powerful people who have dedicated their lives to social justice. And it's all because of my mother's role in history and the legacy work that I've been doing to carry forth the torch. But never for a second do I take these sacred moments for granted. And this conversation with Ruby Bridges is definitely a sacred moment for me. Please note that the N-word is used in this episode in a historical context. Ruby Bridges is a civil rights activist who, as I mentioned, at the age of six, was the first Black student to desegregate William France Elementary School in New Orleans. She was born in Mississippi in 1954, the same year the United States Supreme Court handed down its landmark decision ordering the desegregation of public schools. Her family later moved to New Orleans, where on November 14, 1960, Bridges began attending William France Elementary School, single-handedly initiating the desegregation of public education in New Orleans. Her walk to the front door of the school was immortalized in Norman Rockwell's painting, The Problem We All Live With, in Robert Cole's book, The Story of Ruby Bridges, and in the Disney movie, Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges published her most recent book in November 2020, This Is Your Time. Her first book in over 20 years following the publication of her award-winning autobiography, Through My Eyes. She established the Ruby Bridges Foundation to provide leadership training programs that inspire youth and community leaders to embrace and value the richness of diversity. Bridges is the recipient of numerous awards, including the NAACP Martin Luther King Award, the Presidential Citizens Medal, and honorary doctorate degrees from Connecticut College, College of New Rochelle, Columbia University Teachers College, and Tulane University. She was recently named one of 100 Iconic Women of the Century by USA Today. Ruby Bridges, it is an extraordinary honor and privilege to welcome you to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. Thank you so much for being on my show. Finally, I am so happy that you finally extended an invitation. I'm so thrilled. I'm over the moon. And even for our listeners, I'm sure you can hear the big smile I have across my face. As it led up to me interviewing you, I was thinking about it and I was like, wow, I just feel very fortunate to say that I've known you now for 19 years. I was going to ask you how long has it been? Because I feel like it's been a lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like it. And the time went by so fast, but I remember it just like yesterday. It was on the brink of my 22nd birthday. And yeah, you came to Little Rock, Arkansas, where I was living at the time. And my mother, Minnie Jane Brown Tricky, and my brother Isaiah said they had a surprise for me and my little sister, Layla. I don't know if they surprised with the actual visit, but they surprised us with the fact that you were coming and you came to our apartment and we just had such a beautiful evening. My little sister Layla and I had watched the Ruby Bridges story about 150 times. We had read your book. I mean, it was just, we were so elated and we peppered you with questions all night long and just, it was just a beautiful evening. You indulged us. You were so gracious and I'm just honored to say here we are 19 years later. I know. I can't believe it's been that long, but that was an incredible meeting for me as well, because I feel the exact same way about Jean, your mom. So just for all of us to kind of be in each other's presence, I just felt very special because having entered that family at six years old, our civil rights family, but not actually meeting all of my relatives 
that that's what that meeting felt like for me. Definitely, um, it feels like a lifetime. Truly, it feels a lot longer than it has been. But I think uh, for me, it is because of that reason. For a very, very long time, it was, I felt a little bit like an outsider trying to find the rest of my family, if that makes any sense. Absolute, total sense. And actually, I have a question along those lines, just in terms of what was the catalyst for you to begin your journey? Because just like in my mother's experience, desegregating Central High School, it's not as though she went to school and then the next year people were calling her, requesting her to speak or any of that. There was like a painful dormant period where she just kind of dealt with it silently. And it's really interesting how you describe it as like a coming together as the civil rights family. I, I can just imagine how Jean must have felt because she was young, but she was high school. So you have to imagine what it was like for me uh, being six years old. It wasn't like my parents prepped me and uh, prepared me for what I was about to venture into. And in hindsight, being a mom myself now and a grandmom, I understand that that was probably the best approach because how could you explain to a six-year-old what they were about to venture into? I was accustomed to school because I had already gone to an all-Black school for kindergarten and definitely remember what that experience was like. You know, it was my first school experience. It was um, further away from my house, this all-Black school, and uh, a large population of kids, probably about a thousand kids in, in this one school. Uh, so there were kids crawling all, all over everywhere, but I loved that. Uh, I had a great teacher who uh, was much older and reminded me of my grandmother. Everybody in the whole school looked exactly like me because we were divided by the color of our skin. So I loved school. I was accustomed to it, but now I was being told that I was going to go to a new school. And uh, definitely my parents didn't say, you're going to go to a white school. It was just that, Ruby, you're going to go to a new school today and you better behave. And that was pretty much the extent of preparing me for what I was about to walk into. You know, part of the process was even though there were many volunteers who had six-year-old kids in my community who had signed their kids up to go, all of those kids had to be tested. And as you know, that was sort of the same approach that the opposition did when we were trying to register to vote. And actually it was the exact same approach because we were told that the, or my parents were told that the kids had to be tested to see if they were indeed smart enough to go into these white schools. And what really was happening is that the test was set up to eliminate kids, to keep them from going. Mm -hmm. And so out of nearly 150 kids that had been tested, only six of them passed. And I happened to be one of them. Wow. I'd like to go back a bit just to set the stage. Your first year at William Friends Elementary School was in 1960 when you were only six years old. And that was six years after the Brown versus Board of Education case outlawing segregation and education. You know, it didn't happen overnight and there was massive resistance. Can you talk a bit about what was going on in the city of New Orleans in terms of that resistance, why it wasn't until 1960 that the schools desegregated or elementary in particular? I am sure there was lots of resistance. Being six, it wasn't like I was aware of it at the time, but now, you know, knowing a bit more and looking back on it, truly New Orleans had its own share of integrating the lunch counters, places to eat, that sort of thing. All of that was going on. And the NAACP, who was actually spearheading this movement all across the country, because as you know, it already happened in Little Rock in 1957, but that was high school. And here in New Orleans and in Louisiana, that had not happened yet. So even though the NAACP was spearheading the movement and enforcing this change, the opposition was constantly putting up stumbling blocks, making sure that it didn't happen. So, I mean, up until the last minute, because school normally starts in September. And so I was supposed to start school in September for first grade. And yet and still, the opposition was 
blocking that. And so I ended up starting first grade at the all black school, September and October, and not until November 14th were the schools actually going to be integrated, which is the day that I went into school. So the opposition was truly working up to the last minute, burning the midnight all, as you say, just to make sure that this did not happen. Do you think that it was set up to fail? Because when you think about the younger the kids are, the more open or innocent that they are to what's going on around them. I know that it was set up to fail because um, they only chose two schools in uh, New Orleans. And the two schools that they chose were located in the most racist parts of the city because there were other schools that actually volunteered their school to be the ones that would integrate first. And these schools were located in affluent neighborhoods, but that's not what the opposition wanted. So they chose the two schools and they made sure that they were located in the most racist parts of the city. William France Elementary is the school that I actually ended up attending and it is located in the uh, lower ninth ward that we all now know so much about because of Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. But truly, it was a very poor part of town. And then the second school was further away, uh, located in a community called Chalmette, Louisiana. And Chalmette, Louisiana was known to be one of the most racist communities in the city. As a matter of fact, Black folks wouldn't even go into that community. And yet one of the schools they chose was like one block away from that community. So truly there were families and kids that were attending that school from Chalmette because it was just like a block away. That was not the school that I ended up going to, but definitely they were working as much as possible to set up different scenarios so that it would fail. And I think choosing those two communities, they knew that that's where we would fight the most and that if it was going to fail, it would fail in those two communities. That's really interesting. And I know for a fact that that's not unique to New Orleans or Louisiana, even in Little Rock, the elementary schools didn't desegregate um, until many years after high schools. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. Switching gears a bit, one of the pillars of the Roots of the Spirit podcast is Sankofa, in essence, looking back to the past to understand the present. In that spirit, I would love to learn about your grandparents' lives and journeys and your parents prior to them moving to New Orleans. My, um, I was actually born in a small town called Tylertown, Mississippi, uh, which is about two hours outside of New Orleans. And um, my grandparents on both sides, my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family, they were sharecroppers. My father's family, there were seven brothers and two daughters. That was a very large family. And pretty much what they did is that they actually raised and picked cotton but they also sharecropped because they raised vegetables because that's how they earn a living and was able to pay for the rent and feed themselves and that sort of thing. On my mother's side, they uh, also lived in Tylertown, Mississippi, and they were dairy farmers. But my grandmother was the person that raised all the crops. And so my mother, there were six sisters and two brothers. So that was a very large family as well. So that's what both of them did. And neither one of them had a formal education because if they actually had to work to get the crops in, then um, going to school was a luxury for them that they were not able to do. The girls on my mom's side worked like men because they only had two brothers and one brother actually left very early on he was uh, about 21 and he left mississippi and came to new orleans uh, even before my uh, mom did 
So that meant that they were all girls and uh, just one boy. So the girls actually did all of the labor pretty much on my mother's side. And I guess that speaks to, you know, the strength mm-hmm. uh, my mother uh, had and just a, the way she carried herself. My father, there were more sons than uh, daughters. So they did the majority of the work. But because of the way they were raised, you know, education was something that they they just were not privileged to. My father, when he was about 22 or 23, was drafted and sent to Korea, where he fought in the Korean War. And I often say that um, it's important for me to kind of paint a picture of my dad, because when we start to talk about their decision to put me in, my father was the one that was really against it. Mm-hmm. But my father said that um, even on the battlefield, when it was your turn to be on the front line, that you could be next to a white soldier fighting for the same country or find yourself in a foxhole with that soldier fighting for the same country. And if you managed to live at the end of the day, you could not go back to the same barracks and you could not eat in the same mess hall, that he was still just a colored soldier. And then after returning home, not being able to find work, uh, once he returned home, he went back to Mississippi during that time and uh, (laughs) was still not welcome. Uh, I remember him telling a story about how he'd gone to the uh, local grocery store and that this little uh, white boy came up to him and start pulling on his uniform and medals because my father also was awarded a Purple Heart for saving a fellow soldier while he was wounded. So after getting back home and being decorated with these medals that this little white boy started to pull on them to jack them off of him. And when he uh, moved his hand and asked him to stop, that the store owner pulled a gun on him saying, you know, not to touch his son, you know, don't ever do that. Mm. You know, so I often say that, you know, the things that my father probably saw and experienced being at war was definitely different from any experience that my mom had. So I think that that influenced him quite a bit. And he felt like, you know, if doing all that he had done, if that had not changed things for him and his family, once he arrived back in this country, then sending me to this white school wasn't going to change anything. I mean, he came home to the same conditions. Exactly. So he was uh, a little bit apprehensive about it. My mom All she heard was, you know, this will allow your children an opportunity uh, to have a better education, possibly go to college. And I think that that was something that she always regretted doing herself, not having. So she jumped at the opportunity. And like most women, you know, we are so strong. We convince them and we get our way. So (laughs) there I was on my way to um, the school. As you mentioned, your parents did not say, okay, Ruby, you're going to be desegregating a school, et cetera. They broke it down to you um, just as though you were transferring schools. Absolutely. They said nothing about what this school was going to be like or even why I was transferring. And, you know, I, I always like to point out too that that was truly a different day and a different time. And because I get young kids today who always say, well, couldn't you have just said, no, you didn't want to go. That was definitely not the case back then. You know, especially in African-American families coming from Mississippi, even if you found yourself in the same room with adults when they were having grown-up conversations, you were asked to leave. You could not even be in the same room when they were talking. So it wasn't like they were going to sit and discuss it with me. In addition to that, I think the framing around it also is important. How in the world could your parents have anticipated an angry, violent mob waiting at the front of the school? They really wanted you to have an opportunity at the best education, and this was the path. So I don't even know how one would explain to a six-year-old. What I find really beautiful and 
a testimony to your youth and innocence at six years old is the fact that when you arrived to school on the first day, a mob had formed. They were chanting, they were screaming, behaving as a mob. And in your young mind, you thought that it was Mardi Gras. Can you talk about that? I just think it's, it's just a touch of innocence that kind of goes up against the harshness of the systemic racism that you were facing. Absolutely. Um, because my parents chose not to try to prepare me, which I uh, commend them on today because there would be no way to really uh, prepare a six-year-old. I mean, you have to think about it. What would you say? You know, you're going to go to a new school. There are going to be lots of people out in front of the school and they're going to be screaming and shouting and they're angry and they don't want you there. I mean, there's just no way you could really explain that to a six-year-old. And yet I get lots of questions uh, all of the time from people wanting to know how I felt about it that day, uh, knowing that I was going into this white school and, and no, I didn't know. And so, yes, living in New Orleans and being accustomed to Mardi Gras, I mean, it's a huge celebration. Everybody knows what Mardi Gras looks like. And uh, pretty much it was something that we looked forward to because Mardi Gras is also a, uh, a huge family event. It's not just what you see uh, in the French Quarter. Um, families prepare for it. They go and pick out their spot and, you know, set up a grill and it's a huge family day. So... I remember turning the corner and seeing crowds of people that had formed in front of the school and they were screaming. There were lots of noise. They were carrying signs and me not being able to read, didn't know what the words meant. They seemed angry, but it wasn't like I was focused on them because I was also surrounded by federal marshals. There were four of them and I'm a little tiny six-year-old, you know, in the middle of them. So it wasn't like I could really, really see. And again, not knowing that they were there for me. They were police officers everywhere. I remember that. They were on horseback and motorcycles. And um, so, yes, in my mind, I thought I had stumbled into uh, the middle of a parade, which happens at Mighty Gras. I often say that really what protected me was the innocence of a child not knowing, and even if I was inquisitive about it, pretty much not knowing what you leave a six-year-old or a child to do is to use their imagination. Mm -hmm. And pretty much that's what I did. I also remembered the fact that having taken the test and when people came over to congratulate my parents saying, oh my goodness, you're so smart. You know, none of these kids were able to pass. There's only six of them you know, encouraging my parents not to take me out. I remembered that conversation and how so many of their friends and neighbors came over and brought gifts and congratulated them. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so no one else was able to pass this test that now I'm going to a new school and they didn't really explain what the school was going to be. I really thought that I had taken a test that meant I was so smart and I can now go to college that's so great <laughs> there I was six years old thinking that everybody came out to see this uh six-year-old go straight to college that I was so smart and we just happened to stumble into the middle of a, a Mighty Gras parade <laughs> having said all of that I was not afraid there was no reason for me to be in my mind. Right. So you made it inside the school on the first day and you spent the first day sitting in the office. What was really happening is that uh, everybody knew that the schools were going to be desegregated November the 14th. No one knew which schools. The schools were pretty much kept secret. So what people did, and the reason why the mob was there, is that they would bring their kids and they would wait because they wanted to see if it was going to be their school. Mm. I don't know if they pretty much knew that it was going to be in that area or what, but people did not leave and they were standing out in front of several schools. And yet when I arrived, they knew it was their school. Mm. 
So I remember the marshals escorting my mom and I into the building and took us to the uh, principal's office, which is where I sat. And the federal marshal stayed right outside of the door. And you could actually see through the windows of the office, you could see into the hallway. So the next thing that I noticed is that all of those people that were standing outside, they rushed inside of the building. Mm. And I could see them passing the office. And when they would come back by the office, there were kids with them. And that went on the whole day. What was actually happening is that once they realized it was their school, all of those parents rushed in and they went into every classroom and they pulled out their children. So 500 kids were pulled out of school that day, right before my eyes. I did not realize that that was happening, but I was never exported to a classroom. And uh, finally the bell rang, school was over. And I remember sitting there looking at the clock on the wall and thinking to myself, wow, college is easy. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What a way to start your first day at a new school. My goodness, your mother's patience and perseverance is remarkable. So you left, went home and came back the next day. What happened next? On the second day, once I arrived, I remember once I got inside of the building, it too was different. It was so quiet. You could hear a pin drop. Uh, They walked me to the principal's office and the principal said, your class is down the hall. And I remember the marshals turning me around and walking me down the hall to this classroom. And uh, once we got there, the door opened and this woman stepped out and she said, hi, my name is Mrs. Henry. I'm your teacher. And my first thought was she's white because Mm -hmm. indeed she was white and I had never seen a white teacher before. And not to mention that she looked exactly like all of the people that seemed really angry outside. So I was a little bit hesitant. I didn't know what to expect from her. I remember looking into the classroom and there was nothing but empty desk. So at that moment, I really thought my mom had brought me to school too early. But uh, I often say, yes, it was too early. It was like years too early. We went in and took a seat and uh, Mrs. Henry began to teach me. Mrs. Henry came from Boston to teach me because... uh, There were teachers who actually quit their jobs. They did not want to teach Black kids. Mm -hmm. She was accustomed to teaching diverse groups of kids because her husband was um, also in the military and was stationed in Biloxi, Mississippi, which is right outside of New Orleans. That was the reason why they were in town because they originally are from Boston. But she um, volunteered to teach me because, again, teachers actually quit their jobs. Once I got inside of her classroom, I soon realized that even though she looked exactly like the people outside, she was nothing like them. She was the most amazing teacher. She was very, very dedicated to teaching, making sure that I soaked up as much information as possible. And she also wanted to make sure that um, I, my mind was not focused on all of the noise and everything that was happen- happening outside of the school. You entered the classroom with Mrs. Henry and it was just empty desks. And turns out you would spend the entire school year as the sole student in Mrs. Henry's class. Can you describe that experience? The fact that everyone had uh, taken their kids out the day before as over 500 kids had, you know, walked out of school and they did not come back that whole year. So I spent that year alone in that classroom with Mrs. Henry. The worst thing about first grade for me was the loneliness because I was accustomed to school. I I had already gone to the all black school and it was filled with kids and loved it. And now this was very different. Every day that I would enter the building and and into the classroom, I was hoping that the kids would be there. And I couldn't understand why I was the only kid in the whole school. It wasn't something that anybody tried to explain to me, as I said before. It's not that my parents really talked to me about it. And um, Mrs. Henry didn't try to tell me. I think pretty much she probably would not have been allowed to do that. And so I was constantly trying to figure out why was I the only kid in the class? Why couldn't I go to recess on the playground? There was a huge playground that I could see out of the window. But I remember thinking that the only thing I saw was these 
very tall white men walking around on the playground. And uh, I couldn't understand why they were there. I wasn't allowed to have lunch in the cafeteria because they were always threatening to harm me in some way that they were going to poison me or hang me. And so I remember um, the federal marshals explaining to my parents that they should prepare my lunch and have me eat it at my desk. If I had to go to the restroom, the marshals would take me to the restroom and bring me back to my seat, stand outside of the door. So for a very long time, I remember thinking that maybe I'm punished. <laughs> Yet I didn't understand why, because I didn't know what I had done. When you bring up the fact that people in the mob were saying that they were going to poison you and just the evil and vile things that they were saying, yet it was very confusing to you being so young. I'm curious from your vantage point now, do you think that you were being impacted on a subconscious level um, by walking through the mob, hearing those things and then being alone in the class? I think I was. Um, definitely, I'm, I'm sure I was. I remember that they were, uh, on several occasions, they would bring a small baby's coffin and they would put this black doll inside of the coffin and they would march around the school with that. They held a burnt cross. They would, you know, march around the school with those things. Whenever I would see the coffin, it's when it bothered me the most because I would, you know, have nightmares about the coffin often. I ended up working with a child psychologist who happened to be in the city. His name was Dr. Robert Coles. He worked with me for three years, but went on to write a series of books called Children of Crisis that he had won a Pulitzer Prize for. And it was actually working with kids that had been in crisis situations. So for three years, he worked with me. And I'm pretty sure that it had a lot to do with the nightmares and everything that you just mentioned that was going on, even though I wasn't aware of it. I'm sure some of those things definitely, you know, bothered me in the end. So you finished out the school year, having spent the entire year by yourself in the classroom with Mrs. Henry. What happened at the end of the school year? And then what happened the next year? Near the end of the year, I did meet other kids. What was happening is that there were white families who tried to send their kids to school with me. The uh, Part of the opposition was the principal. She would take those kids and she would hide them so that they would never see me and I would never see them. I could hear kids, but I never came in contact with them. And I was constantly um, mentioning the fact that I heard kids to my teacher, Mrs. Henry. And even though she didn't say anything directly to me, she was going to the principal and saying, you're breaking the law. Mm. The law's now changed and kids are supposed to be together and yet you're hiding them from Ruby. If you don't allow them an opportunity to come together with Ruby, I'm gonna report you to the superintendent. That allowed her to take me to where the kids were being hidden. And I remember uh, going into this room and there they were, maybe four or five kids. And I was so excited because you have to understand, I spent that whole year trying to figure it all out and waiting for kids. And now all of a sudden there they were. But for me, that was a wake up call because mm -hmm. once I went in uh, to play with them, little boy said, I can't play with you. My mom said not to play with you because you're a nigger. And the minute he said that, that really was my first face-to-face -face encounter with racism. Mm. It wasn't so much the crowd because I thought it was Mardi Gras. It wasn't the fact that it was a white school because I was the only kid there. It wasn't like I saw white kids. I knew nothing about that. My first encounter with racism was the little boy who said, I can't play with you. And I remember the minute he said it, it was like this weight lifted off my shoulders because now I knew. It was like, okay, so that's why there's no kids here. It's because of me and the color of my skin. Even though that wasn't my name, I definitely knew of the word, especially coming from Mississippi, the place that I went back to every summer. So when he said it, I understood what he meant. And I realized, so it's not my ground. And it's not college. It's about me and the way I look. And that's why there's no kids here. So yes, he hurt my feelings, but also in my six-year-old mind, he said, I can't play with you because my mom said not to. And I really thought that he was explaining to me, 
why he couldn't play with me. And I, being six, thought, well, if my mom said not to play with him, because he's Asian, Indian, Hispanic, mixed race, Jewish, gay, white, I would not have played with him. That helped me to understand that racism really isn't something we're born with. It's passed on to you. That little boy helped me to understand that. So what happened after that year? After that year, um, by the time I got back to second grade, the school then was integrated. And all schools across the city was integrated. You could go and register your child, no matter what color they were, into any school in the city. Uh, pretty much kids came back to that particular school. I was then in a regular classroom setting with about 25 kids, still more predominantly white than black, but at least it was a regular classroom setting. Very different again for me because I had not been in an integrated classroom. So then it was like a new beginning once again. You were having- Once again, it was something very different. I, my best friend was gone which was Mrs. Henry, she became uh, my best friend that year. And now she was gone and nobody said she wasn't going to be there. I remember running right back to my class like I had been accustomed to doing every day and it was no longer my class. Mm. It was a different woman in the class and it was almost like I dreamed that whole year before me. So it was, second grade was much harder for me than first. That's really interesting because- there tends to be a lot of focus on the first year, but you have right. to get back to square one. And then Mrs. Henry being gone, that must have been very difficult to navigate. But you yeah. went on to graduate eighth grade, is that right, from William France? Elementary? I graduated uh, sixth grade, uh, William France, and then went to uh, an integrated junior high school, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade which was very close to the same school. I remember going there and even though it was integrated, we were separated. We chose not to interact with each other. Pretty much, I don't even remember having a white friend even though that was an integrated school. By the time I went to high school, it was an integrated high school. Kids were much older and then we were actually fighting. We had separate proms. We were fighting over the school mascot. They flew the rebel flag. Their ma mascot was rebels. And we were protesting, all of us in school, about changing the mascot, changing the flag. People were arrested. High school was really much, much worse, which helped me to understand that the older kids became, the more this was ingrained in them. Mm -hmm. As you continued on with your education, did people know you as Ruby Bridges? No, because once I'd gone back to William France for second grade and the schools were integrated across the city, I think pretty much everybody in the city felt ashamed of how this all unfolded and how a six-year-old was treated. So pretty much people did not want to discuss it in the city. And because my mother and father were, um, had different views about it, um, it was really, really hard for them. My father was fired from his job once they found out that it, you know, it was his daughter. So it was really, really hard for him. The NAACP uh, advised him that it wasn't a good time for him to go out and look for work because people did know. And so therefore he wasn't able to provide. And that caused a lot of, that led to other problems for my parents. And eventually they separated and I found myself being raised by a single parent uh, by the time I was in sixth grade. So by the time I was actually coming out of William France Elementary, my parents were separated. It wasn't like anybody around me really wanted to talk about it. We didn't have Black History Month, so that wasn't an opportunity. It wasn't like I was going to open up my history books and find myself in the history books. That was not the case. So pretty much it was swept under the rug. It was almost like, did I dream this whole thing? So how long did that last? This story, your experience being under the rug, you know, within your family, within the city, within the nation. And what was the catalyst for it coming back to the surface? I was about 17 or 18 years old 
when a reporter came to visit me and wanted to do an interview and showed me the Norman Rockwell painting. And up until that point, I had not seen it. And probably had a lot to do with the fact that no one really wanted to discuss this incident. And, you know, as far as the Norman Rockwell painting goes, I know a lot about it now in the history of it because I sit on the Norman Rockwell board, but Norman Rockwell stepped outside of his comfort zone back in the 60s because he had been working and painting the um, Saturday Evening Post. Mm -hmm. And yet when he stepped outside of his comfort zone and wanted to make a political statement, he painted that piece, but he also painted four other very political pieces. One is moving day of a Black family moving into a white neighborhood. The problem we all live with, which is my piece, and also the piece that depicts the murders of Goodman, Cheney, and Schroerner, the three young men that had been murdered in Mississippi. And then there's one other painting. So those were all very political pieces. What was your reaction when you were shown that painting? When I saw it, he explained to me what it depicted and who it was. He said, this is you. And it depicts your walk into the school. And at that moment, it helped me to understand who I was and the fact that this incident that had been swept under the rug wasn't something that just happened in my community. Because actually, that's what I thought, that it was a part of a much bigger movement, that it changed the face of education in this country. It helped me to understand at that point how significant my role was. And that even though no one wanted to discuss it in my city and in my family, it helped me to understand who Ruby Bridges was. After that understanding came to you, how long was it before you began speaking out about it, your experience? That didn't really happen for me publicly. Well, you know, definitely every once Black History Month was established in the 70s. Then every February, somebody wanted to do an interview. But pretty much that was it. It did not happen for me until I feel that I took my rightful place in history until I was about 30 years old. Lots of people knew of the Norman Rockwell painting. And maybe people knew of the story, but no one put those two together. No one understood or knew that the Norman Rockwell painting depicted this walk and that that person was a real person. No one knew that until 1994, when pretty much when that first book was published, the story of Ruby Bridges. I shouldn't say no one knew because we, we know that some people knew. Right. But uh, you take, for instance, Dr. Robert Coles, who was a psychologist that worked with me back when I was uh, six, and worked with me for three years, always wrote about the Ruby Bridges and the story, but because he was a psychologist, he often wrote about it in psychology books. So those two incidents weren't really brought together until that book was published, the story of Ruby Bridges. And he came to you. He came to me in, um, it was about 92 or 93. And he and I met and we discussed the incident. And when he went back, that book was published. And just so happened once it was published, I'd spent between 15 and 17 years working for American Express as a travel counselor which actually helped to shape me into who I am because I traveled extensively abroad that whole 15 year period. And so he and I met and at the time I'd lost a brother and uh, my brother had been murdered and he had four daughters that I actually took into my home and I had to then take them to school and they were attending the same school that I integrated. So since uh, left my job with American Express, wasn't working at the time, had my brother's daughters, driving them to and from the very same school that I integrated. The book was published during the same period of time. 
and I was asked to do an interview and I was found volunteering in the school that I had actually integrated. So you talk about faith. That's actually what happened. And that's what brought me back out into the public eye again. It seems as though your identity evolved into, you know, the Ruby Bridges that is a world-renowned figure. And there were different milestones along the way, like the publishing of the story of Ruby Bridges. And then you wrote your own book. And then Disney. Actually, Disney uh, saw that book that you just held up which is the, the first book that was published. And uh, when that book was published, Scholastic approached me to ask if I would promote it because it was written by my child psychologist. I agreed to promote it, knew nothing about promoting it, but ended up doing radio, television interviews, and in schools. And once that happened, Disney saw it and became familiar with the story and approached me about doing a movie. So I often say that my life pretty much grew outside of me and I was, I found myself catching up to it by uh, promoting the book and uh, meeting with Disney about the movie and then the painting. Ah, well, thank you for helping me clear up the timeline. Just so many amazing things happening and unfolding. On somewhat of a related note, Recently, you were in conversation with Chelsea Clinton, a virtual event hosted by the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. It was an absolutely beautiful conversation. And in that conversation, something that really stood out to me is you said that this work is a calling. Can you describe what you mean by that? Well, what I was saying um, to her was that this isn't, because again, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, we were talking about how I stepped into this work. And I then said that I really felt like I was catching up to my life because it was growing outside of me, but that it wasn't something, I think too, we were talking about what is it you want it to be when you grew up? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, in hindsight, thinking about that, because I know that's a question that every kid gets when they're in school and very young, and that I never really remember not once saying or thinking that I wanted to be a teacher or a nurse or a doctor or any of that and couldn't understand why mm -hmm. that never came up for me. And now I do. And it was because what I said to her is that this work isn't something that you fill out an application to do that it's a calling and a calling is different. You do not complete an application. You, none, you don't turn in a resume. That you find yourself just making a commitment to yourself and to your maker. And for me, that that's actually what I did. Once I realized that I traveled abroad and that no longer satisfied me, there had to be something else that I needed to be doing. And it happened at an age where I now understand it happens to most of us. Somewhere between 30 and 40, you have this aha moment, like, what am I really supposed to be doing with my life? And I was no different. That happened for me as well. And um, that I knew it had something to do with kids. I knew it had to be connected to my prior history. And uh, so I found myself on my knees praying about it, saying, show me, show me whatever it is I'm supposed to be really doing with my life. And that I was no longer going to be out trying to figure it out on my own. I do believe that each and every one of us come into the world with a purpose in life. Some of us are very fortunate before we leave this place, we realize what that purpose is. And for me, that is what I think happened. But the fact that I actually surrendered and asked to be shown what my purpose is did all of these pieces connect back together again for me? That's the conversation she and I was having. It's beautiful too, because I've seen you firsthand speak to young people and their questions are just so amazing and glorious. And I think your name, Ruby Bridges, has come up quite a bit. I'm just thinking about how you describe your calling and how you stepped into it and embraced it and that your name is Ruby Bridges. Can you talk about children's reaction to your name being Ruby Bridges? 
in light of your experience? <laughs> it's funny because um, you can, actually, you know, I'm committed to doing three other books that I'm working on now. And one of them is I Am Ruby Bridges. And it talks about sort of what that means. And I talk about how my grandmother named me, how I hated my name. It, was, it just felt like it was such an old name, even when I was six years old. Like, who's, who's named Ruby? I don't even... <laughs> But anyway, um, I was told that it is a jewel that bridges the gap between black and white. <laughs> wow. And I just kind of stuck with me. And um, I, I think that it definitely is connected to my purpose and not even knowing that, you know, at the time, but kids love it. Now there's so many rubies, you know, I, I meet them all the time. And uh, I just think it's, it's amazing. It's truly speaks to uh, my faith and uh, being obedient to it. I often say that really, that's what I feel like I'm doing. There were, you know, there was a time when I didn't know who Ruby Bridges was. And wasn't quite sure what I was supposed to be doing with my life. Uh, that was a very uh, depressing time for me. And after getting off my knees and asking to be shown, I am who I am right now because of it, I do believe. That's so wonderful. And I love how you share just kind of that point in life, like that it happens, you know, it happens at different times for different people, but between the 30s and 40s, because I know in this rapid paced world, sometimes there's a lot of pressure to try to figure it out, whether you're a teenager in your 20s. And sometimes we just don't have the wisdom or the insight or just, I guess you could say the surrender to yes. what you're passionate about and what's coming to you, what's coming out of you. So I really appreciate you for saying that. As you mentioned, you're the subject of the iconic painting of The Problem We All Live With by Norman Rockwell. In 2011, President Obama hung it outside of the Oval Office and there's this video, an absolutely beautiful moment between you two. You're standing outside the Oval Office in front of the painting and he says, in essence, I think it's fair to say that if it hadn't been for you that I might not be here and we wouldn't be looking at this together. So thank you. So actually, I just wanted to reflect on that for a moment. I mean, what was that like for me? Yeah, just, you know, President Obama being the first Black president, standing outside of the Oval Office with him, and he's attributing your journey, your sacrifice to his ability to serve as the first Black president. Well, during that particular uh, time, I was pretty much... Uh, coming up on an anniversary date. I can't re exactly remember which one it was. And I wanted to celebrate it in some way, but I didn't want to just um, celebrate it locally because I'd spent so many years traveling all across the country and even in Canada and, uh, you know, speaking to kids. So I felt like it if I was going to celebrate it, it needed to be something on a national level. So myself and a um, few very dear friends of mine, we ended up writing to uh, President Obama asking if he would uh, help us to commemorate the anniversary by hanging the painting in the White House. The original. The original one, yes. Uh, because the original painting actually travels even more than I do. It travels all across the country. And for the very first time last year, it traveled outside of the country. And I was with it then. It was in France. So a few months after writing him, we got a call and uh, said that the painting was on its way to the White House. We were so excited about it. And a couple of weeks later, I got a call from the White House and he invited me to come and see it. I was so excited, not really nervous about it because I had already uh, gone to the White House under the Clinton administration and received the uh, Presidential Medal. So I was, you know, very cool about it. It's like, okay, this is going to be, you know, easy. I'm not nervous, but I really wanted to um, have my son go with me because I wanted him to be inspired by this first Black president. So I took him with me on that trip. 
And I remember um, being at the White House and uh, being instructed how to greet him once he came into the room. And that uh, basically what they said to me is that I had a person that was uh, assisting myself and, and my family from the White House and said, you know, once the president comes into the room, um, I will greet him first. And then uh, once I introduce him to you, you can turn and introduce him to your family. And I said, okay, fine. So there I found myself in this room. It was a closed meeting, only uh, about 10 people, which was pretty much his people. And uh, so once the door opened, just as they explained to me, he walked through the door. And once he walked through the door and, and I saw him coming toward me, everything went out of the window. <laughs> I was like, he is a black man. You know, it's like you can see something on television and, you know, yes, I voted for him. Yes, I knew he had won. We'd gone to the inauguration. But having him open the door in the White House and walk toward me as the president of the United States was an altogether different feeling. Because I remember looking at him and thinking he is a Black man. There's a Black man in the White House as president. And when he came over to me, I, you know, um, we did the way, what we were instructed to do. And then I ended up extending my hand saying, Mr. President, it's an honor to meet you. And he put both his hands on each one of his hips. And he said, are you kidding me? I'm getting a hug. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's so beautiful. And he threw his arms around me and leaned on my shoulder and whispered in my ear. And he said, I cannot begin to tell you what an honor it is to welcome you into this mm. White House under this administration. And when he said that, we were still embracing, but I looked over his shoulder and the people that were in the room were all tearing up. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized that this wasn't just about he and I meeting. It, it was about the time between us mm. and the sacrifices. It was about my dad being on that battlefield. It was about Dr. King losing his life. It was about the Little Rock Nine. It was about so many people in between he and I. And that's why people were tearing up. That's such an extraordinary way to describe that. Yeah, it took on a whole new meaning for me. And yes, we did get a chance to walk through the whole White House, ended up uh, standing in front of the painting, and I asked him how the girls reacted to it. He said, you know, I catch them often standing here and looking at it, and I think they see themselves. And then that's when he said, it's fair to say that if it had not been for you all, I probably wouldn't be where I am right now today. That is so powerful. Yeah, it was very powerful. Such a sacred experience. I'd like to talk about your newest book, Ruby Bridges, This Is Your Time, which to my understanding was your beautiful reaction and creation in the form of a letter initially as a response to the summer of 2020 with the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor. And the world was gifted with this beautiful book. I'd love for you to talk about your inspiration for the book and how it unfolded. You're absolutely right. You know, I, I just I just come off the road and uh, locked inside like all of us because of the virus and witnessed George Floyd's death right before my very eyes. And I think all of us were holding our breath the first seven days or a week waiting for somebody, some kind of leadership to say something. And I felt a sense of responsibility because I just come off the road talking to hundreds, thousands of kids and knew that they were watching too and thinking about all the things that I just said to them. And yet they had to witness this and felt like I had somehow let them down because my message is always about uniting and not looking at a person and judging them and yet this happened that I felt like in a sense we're setting us back 60 years 
and that I needed to say something to them, but had, didn't know how to do it. And you know, I have a, a really good team of people that helped me and they suggested that I write a letter. And we were thinking that we would publish this letter either in New York Times or USA Today, something like that, and had the potential of really doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, my publishers said, give it to us. We'd love to have it. And that's how it actually ended up in the book. But basically it was a letter and and I addressed it to the young peacemakers of the world because I wanted them to understand that what we were witnessing looked very familiar to me, Mm -hmm. that it looked a lot like things and incidents that I had seen during the civil rights movement and during my walk into the school. And I wanted them to know that because of the civil rights movement and all those people like your mom, myself, and so many countless other people who sacrificed back then, um, that we were in a better place because of it. You know, a lot of times it's hard to see the glass half full, Mm -hmm. you know? You see something like that and you think the glass is half empty, but it's really not. It is half full. If we see it half empty, then we dismiss the sacrifices that mm-hmm. my parents, your parents, Dr. King's life, Malcolm's ex life, Rosa Parks, we dismiss all of that. And I will never do that. The glass is half full. In that spirit of approaching this with such a positive outlook, I actually have a question which comes from my young nephew, Noah. And it is, how do you feel about the fact that some schools are more segregated now than they have been in the past? Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. If we see the glass half empty, we need to look in the mirror and say, what have I done to help move this country forward? Because we are in the positions we are in now because of all of those people that sacrificed before us. Mm-hmm. Until I walked up those steps at six years old, schools were not integrated. Until the Little Rock Nine integrated in 1957, high schools were not integrated. So we are benefiting from all of those sacrifices. So now if we're not further ahead or we see ourselves going backwards, what's happened in that 60 year span of time? Mm -hmm. Have we really, really put in the work? Because we all know that there were lots of young people that King actually utilized Mm -hmm. during the movement. When I saw young people take to the streets after George Floyd's murder, Mm -hmm. I was so pleased about that. And I heard other people say the same thing because it was about time. When those young people took to the streets, uh, the Parkland kids, Mm -hmm. because they said enough is enough. We no longer want to hear you say there's nothing you can do about taking the guns off the streets and keeping us from being shot down and murdered in our schools. So you're telling us there's nothing you can do to protect us, then we need to get up and get into the streets. So I was really, really pleased about that. It was about time. And so what I believe is that, you know, 60 years have passed And we're just now seeing all of these young people take to the streets and protest and do all of the things that people did back in 1960. Mm -hmm. So I believe, yes, we do know that schools are even more segregated and I'm one for integrated schools. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, it's great. We could have our own schools and they, you know, we run them and, you know, they're named after us as African-Americans, but they still need to be integrated too, just as we demand other schools to be integrated. Yeah, and I know you're a huge proponent of multicultural education as well. Absolutely. As we're coming to the end of this wonderful conversation, I want to share with the world one of your beautiful slogans, or rather mantras, and that is, racism is a grown-up disease. Let's stop using our kids to spread it. Can you please expand on this mantra that you've been sharing with thousands of children and adults alike around the world? Uh, Racism is a grown-up disease. Let's stop using our kids to spread it because if we were not using our kids to do that, then it would have been over in 1960 when I went into the school, but it's not. And it's raised its ugly head even more. We, all of us have probably were surprised just how divided we were 
when we saw the results of this last election. Yes, we know racism is alive and well. We know the lives lost. We know all that's been happening. We know the talk that we have to have with our young black men that's been happening forever and ever. But I am probably sure we were surprised at just how divided we were down the middle. So each and every one of our babies come into the world with a very, very unique gift. That unique gift is a clean heart. That baby is going to come into the world with a very unique gift. It's going to have a clean heart. It's going to have a fresh start in life. That's its gift coming into the world. Now it's up to you what you are going to do with it. Are you going to help it to keep that clean heart and that fresh start in life to keep its very unique gift that it comes into the world? Or are you going to pass your own biases on to it? Mm. That's your decision to make. But once you make that decision, you need to understand how you are shaping that human being. Mm -hmm. And that's what that slogan is all about. We have to stop using our babies to spread our own biases. Because you're, hopefully, because that's what all of us hope as parents that you will leave here and that you will leave that child here in the world. And hopefully it will be at peace. It will grow to be healthy and also have a good heart, but you have to help shape that. That's your responsibility as a parent. And so you have a decision to make of how and what kind of world you want to leave it with. And that's what that saying is all about. And for me, that came from the little boy who said, I can't play with you. My mom said not to because you're a nigger. And I knew it didn't come from him. And so, yes, each and every one of us, we have a responsibility to make sure that this country lives up to its name. We can't just live here in this country and not take that responsibility to heart. We really have a responsibility, but we cannot help this country to live up to its name if we are not united because we are the country. Right. Otherwise, it's just land. We are the country. So we can't hold this country responsible for not living up to its name, the United States of America, if we can't unite. Yes. Well, that's incredibly powerful. And I just it's literally washing over me and I'm thinking about how so fortunate and profound it is that you embraced, you know, your journey and the goodness that would come through you and then go ahead and ripple out into the world and make our world such a beautiful, harmonious place. So I just, I can't thank you enough. I my words will not be adequate, but I'm literally trying to refrain <laughs> the tears from flowing because it's such a beautiful honor and privilege to have this conversation with you. Well, you know that you are very dear, near and dear to my heart. And I just want to say thank you. I love you very much. And I know I speak for everyone listening. This is <laughs> absolutely brilliant and amazing. Love you too. Have a good one.